All right, let's open the book. Let's be in the book of Exodus as we continue our study through this book of redemption. It's a book of redemption as God delivers His people out of Egypt. But in so doing, God is truly reintroducing Himself to us. He's revealing what His character is like. You want to know God, read the book of Exodus. That's what we're here for. But in the process of trying to get to understand this God, He might indeed break you down in the process. They break you down to build you up. That's what you hope. You hope there's some purpose to this difficulty in breaking down. And certainly the SEAL candidates hope the same as they batter against wave after wave in their SEAL training. Navy SEAL training boot camp to actually joining a SEAL team takes a year and a half. It's a grueling process. And it reaches its peak difficulty the very third week in. And this is where most all of them drop out. Even voluntarily, they just say, no more of this. All of these who prided themselves as they signed up for the most prestigious and difficult branch of U.S. military. They thought they had it, they wanted to be it, but then they bail. Well, what's so tough about this third week of camp? Oh, they, they even advertise it for you. Let me read. Week three of SEAL training consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep. I don't do anything well on four hours of sleep. It tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain, cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress and sleep deprivation. Also, do not do well there. Above all, it tests determination and desire. They note, on average, only 25% of SEAL candidates make it through this, the toughest training in the U.S. military. Again, these are the cream of the crop that are trying out for the SEALs, and only a quarter of them make it. It goes on, during this impossible week, mud covers uniforms, heads, and faces, everything but the eyes. Sand chafes raw skin, and the salt water makes cuts burn. Students perform evolutions that require them to think, lead, make decisions, and functionally operate when they are extremely sleep-deprived, approaching hypothermia, and even hallucinating. Why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so difficult, so painful? It's so painful, actually, over this past year, a SEAL candidate even died right after his training of this third week. Why does it have to be so hard? Well, here's what they say. Making it through this week is often the greatest achievement of the candidates' lives. It's when it comes the realization that they can do 20 times more than they ever thought possible. It's a defining moment that they reach back to when they are in combat, you see. It's preparing them for the worst on the battlefield. Because then they will know that they will never, ever quit or let a teammate down. They want to take you to the brink, or really beyond the brink, of what you ever thought you could handle. Why? Why do they make it so demanding? Because the missions the SEALs get called to are the worst. They're worse than the training. And if you're not ready to go through the training, there's no way you're ready for the mission, no matter how strong, no matter how buff, no matter how many pull-ups you can do. It matters not. Why does it need to be so hard? Because these missions are basically impossible. 
And there's no way you can get ready for the impossible mission unless they first break you down. You must be broken down first before you can ever be ready for that mission. Okay, now we turn to God's Word. So buckle up. But not because we're about to go outside and do some push-ups and run laps. Though some of you would love that idea. But understand, God does things like this in our lives. He has to break us down to then build us up. But the difference is, it's not so we can, quote, realize that we can do 20 times more than we ever thought. No, He breaks you down to show you you could never do it. And you never will on your own. You can't do it on your own. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many Bible passages you memorize, no matter what you do, how long you train, He's teaching you you are weak. That means you need a deliverer. You need a Savior. That's what this word is to us from Exodus this morning. How can God equip you for service, for one, that you'd be useful for Him, but also just how can He get you ready for salvation? Well, here it comes. He's got to break you down. He's got to strip you of your self-confidence, your self-reliance, your thought, well, maybe I have it all together, or your thought, maybe I'm not so bad, or maybe I have the strength for this. No, He's got to show you you you're weak, that you wouldn't rely on yourself, and so then you would wholly cast your faith on Him. Those that do that, that see their weakness, but see that God is stronger, they are the ones ready, ready to be delivered, ready to be useful for Him. So let's this morning prepare ourselves for service for the Lord, and it begins with this, Find your failings and weaknesses. How do you get ready to serve the Lord? You need to see you're weak. You need to find your failings and your weaknesses. And we see that in verses 11 to 15. Now, as we open into the text, let me remind you just briefly where we've been. We've seen evil Pharaoh, right? And he's been trying another attempt to further oppress the Jewish people. And that was he demanded the murder of all of the the sons of the Jews, And yet there was one family who faithfully hid their son, such that for three months he would not be touched. And yet, after three months, they could hide him no longer. They put him in a God-saving boat, an ark, this little basket in the river, hoping that God might protect the boy when they had no power to do so. Now, very ironically, Pharaoh, in one sense, gets a hand on that baby boy through his daughter who finds him. But the daughter doesn't kill the boy, but of course saves him, plucks him out of the Nile, even adopts him as his own, and names him Moses. And of course, it's the great Moses we're going to follow through the book of Exodus. And it's this Moses now, as we fast forward 40 years, he grows up in the luxury and wealth and privilege of Pharaoh's home. And of course, this is a different kind of upbringing than any other Jewish boy, if they even survived. Moses would sleep in Pharaoh's palace while his Jewish brothers were oppressed by a harsh, brutal slavery day after day, year after year, and now generation after generation. And yet, even with all of that security, all of that privilege, all of that courtly prestige, Moses identified more with his original family, his people, than he did with Moses, or excuse me, with the Egyptians. 
He identified and sided with the slaves, with the Jews. Such that as we finally now pick up the story in verse 11. Again, Moses grown up. He's 40 years old. And he goes out to the mud fields to see what life for his brothers, his people is really like. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, again, he was 40. That's when you've grown up apparently, but I'll move on from that. By the way, I've barely made it. (laughs) Moses went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, I want you to see three things here. First, Moses saw this happen. Why is this important? He goes out and Moses sees things. They come to his eyes. This is important in particular. Keep this in your mind by the time we get to the end of this text. Because somebody else is going to see something, and it makes a load of difference between Moses sees. But when Moses sees this stuff, his horrible acts, he's moved to action. And what does he see? This is the second thing you need to notice. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, this word for beat has a, a wide array of meanings. It can be a judicial punishment, like just the strike or lash, or it can be a murderous, deadly stroke. Depends on the context. I think here we can know whatever the beating was, it was something particularly brutal. Maybe it would have led to the slave's death. Can't be sure. But third, you need to note then the way Moses is just driven by then irrepressible action. His heart is so stirred and so has such affinity for his people, he cannot stand this injustice upon them. He must do something. And so in his going out and seeing the brutality done against his countrymen, Moses now sides with the Jews, even against and rejection of the Egyptian household that raised him. And based on what he was seeing and how the Jews were being treated, Whether you were a Jew or whether you were an Egyptian, this was the right move to make. Moses took this step to side with the Jews, and really, this was a great step in faith in God. This was not so much about an ethnic affiliation or preference. This was about a trust in a God who made promises to a certain people, the Jews. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament puts it like this. This is Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth worth more than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. I mean, again, just think about that for a moment. Moses gave up a ton in a worldly sense, didn't he? He sacrificed all kinds of privilege, money, security, comfort. And what did he trade it for? But to identify with a bunch of abused slaves. But more than this, to identify with God. But then how could it be? How could someone take so much security, so much comfort, so much good going for them and exchange it for identifying with beaten slaves? Well, again, we return to that text in Hebrews. Because it was not simply 
Why would you make the exchange? Well, that was the right thing to do. That's why I sided with the Jews. It was that, but it was more than that. For as we begin there in Hebrews, it says, Moses chose to be mistreated with God's people. Again, he exchanged comfort to being persecuted. Why? To side with God. Why? Rather than enjoy all that sin's pleasure could bring, it says. He exchanged siding with Egypt and all of sin's pleasures to stand with God against it all. And in part, why? Because as the, again, the book of Hebrews describes, they are the fleeting pleasures of sin. The joy, the satisfaction, the pleasures that sin gives, and they're real, okay? They're actual. Sin is pleasurable, but here's the point, but for a moment, right? The pleasures sin gives, they are real, but they're quite temporal. They're in time, they're fleeting, they're short-lived. They're here for a moment and gone the next. And so then, what do we become? As it regards sin, we become sin addicts. You need more of it. And you've got to have more extreme versions of it. It didn't last. The high, I need another one. And so we become dependent on it, right? To use some of this language from our own culture. They use that to describe, well, that's how drugs work. Well, yeah, sin in that way is a drug too, isn't it? Maybe the motive behind them all. The drug of lust, of self-pleasure, of selfishness, of man-fearing, of pride, of hypocrisy. The more you give into it, the more it actually has you. That's how sin works. What does that mean? The more you give into it, you guess what you've become? We talked about this. You're a slave to it. You can't break it. You know that feeling this morning. But not only are the pleasures of sin fleeting, they're gone for a moment, and are they enslaving? But here's the thing, and this is what Moses could see by faith. God offers us something so much better than that. He stepped forward to stand with God's people. Why? Because it says he was looking to the reward, the reward of God, knowing the one who created you. And more than this, you get to know he's a redeemer, that he forgives you. The reward of eternal life, enjoying and having fellowship with God forever. He gives you himself. And so this is the choice we must all make. Because here's the thing. If you're going to reject the fleeting pleasures of sin, and you're going to seize and stand with God and look to his reward, then practically speaking, at this moment, that means you have to side with God's people. you got to stand with his people. And that means you're going to have to stand with His people as they are shamed, as they are reproached, as they make you uncomfortable, as they are insulted. Or you could just blend in with Egypt. This is all part of the humbling process, what it means to side with God and His people. And it's humbling because, in part, because God chooses the humbled or the humble. He, go, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what he says about the church. God chooses the humbled or humble on purpose. Those who are, are not strong, those who are not Navy SEALs, though he's chosen some, praise God. Those who are not rich, 
Those who are not noble, those who are not so smart, those who are not with it, those who are not cool. Why? Because he's trying to shame the world who thinks I got something. With, when you have not God, you have nothing. What this means is then as a Christian, siding with God and siding with God's people, it's not going to often bring you prominence. It's not going to bring you before presidents or politicians and kings. It's not going to get you the respect of the wealthy or the most educated, the most esteemed people. Because see, siding with Christ means you side with people who see their need, who see their weakness. This means they're the culturally uncouth, the unsophisticated, the simple. But again, this humiliation is all part of the process. So, stop flattering yourself, thinking you have this all together. Knit in with the church, but understand, we're a church of dweebs and dummies and mess-ups and failures and unrespectable and all and all and goes on. We're the church of the bigots, the world says. We're the church of the uncultured, the unhip, the uncool, the uncredentialed. But may we be a church that is faithful to a great God of great promises. And that means standing with His people. On that final day, trust me, you would rather stand with Christ and His people than against all the world and what they can give you. Okay, but then practically, what does it look like standing with God's people? At least for Moses, let's return back to Exodus chapter 2. What is one to do as he stands with his people? Well, he sees one of his people being brutally beaten. What did Moses do? Verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In one way, Moses rescues his fellow Jew. He saves him from the oppressor, at least in the short term. But see, that's the, that's the issue here. That's part of the problem. Moses is good. He's driven by justice. Even he's driven by compassion. But it's unbridled. It's unthinking. It's reactionary. It's untempered. In this moment, it seems he's raged. That is, what he did was motivated by the right desire, but he executed it the wrong way with a lack of trust in God. Namely, he nominated himself as judge and jury, and so he just executes, murders the Egyptian. So yes, maybe he saved his brother's life, or very clearly, at least saved him from a further beating. But Moses here met an evil with an evil, an even worse one. He took the wrong course. He took matters into his own hands. As even Moses, who records this for us, he gives us clues that even he knew when this was going on, this was not the right thing. That is, his behavior is portrayed as shady, suspect. First of all, he looks around, makes sure no one's looking. And then after committing the crime, what does he do? He buries him in the sand. He was not trying to make some great statement about how I'm, I'm the deliverer now and let's rebel against evil Egypt. No. Now, it is apparent Moses was the right man for this job. He even understood he was that chosen one, perhaps, to be the deliverer and the rescuer sent by God. How did he come to this conclusion? He just needs to think about his life. Why was he plucked out of the Nile? 
Why was he raised in Pharaoh's house? Why was he trained in all the wisdom and wealth of Egypt? But for God had a great plan for him and a unique one. It's all true. But in trust to God, Moses needed to learn to do things God's way with God's time and not just take matters into his own hands as he does here. And so for Moses, this is failure number one, a reliance on his own strength and ability. And that's true even for us, just to think about this idea of salvation, being saved from our sins and placed in a right relationship with God. That cannot come, cannot come by our own strength, physically or spiritually. We cannot, just by our own power, overcome the sin that's tempting us and afflicting us and ruling us. We talked about this. We are slaves to our sin. We have no resident power within to deliver. And even if you could, for the moment, kill the sin in your own power, you will never be able to able to cover over the guilt of it. You can never bury your sin in the sand and the guilt of it. Nor can you say, oh, but I did a really good thing and so God will overlook this thing. That's not how it works. Your guilt is still true. He will still find you out. The murderer who then goes and kindly crosses old ladies across the street, he's not overlooked for his murder. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot take this matter into our own hands. As we started, you need a deliverer. You need a Savior from outside of you. And this is what God is teaching His people. You need a deliverer who can liberate you from sin's power, presence, and penalty. And if you don't know Him yet, He's the risen Lord Jesus. He's the only one. And thankfully, He's come. You can trust Him in this moment. Now, back to Exodus Moses kills the guy, buries him, and then I guess Moses goes to bed. And what was Moses pondering that evening as he went to bed? Was he fearful he might be found out? Perhaps. I think more he was dreaming about the kind of Savior he was going to be for his people. Maybe he wondered, ah, the Jewish population were exploding around Egypt. Look at all these untapped resources to put Egypt down, just, just right at our fingertips. Oh, oh if I can lead this, this revolution, see where he goes with this. I mean, it's going to be a new day in Egypt tomorrow for the Jew. Your deliverer is here. You can imagine him thinking. Indeed, it will prove a new day, but a day that Moses would rather forget. Verse 13. So the next day, he went out, and behold, wouldn't you know, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So the, the ironies as Moses now, the, this great rescuer, the ironies are just coming out more and more. First of all, not only are the Egyptians fighting the Jews, but he goes to discover the Jews are fighting the Jews. But Moses, the Savior, is going to step in and make peace. Confronts the wrongdoer. But even as he does, another irony, or really hypocrisy, surfaces. Moses accuses the man, why do you strike your companion? 
Now, this is the third time in just these three verses we've seen this word, in the Hebrew anyway, strike. The first time Moses came upon the Egyptian that was striking or beating the slave. The second time Moses went and struck, as in struck down the Egyptian and murdered him. And then the third time we find it here, as Moses is confronted about the Jew who was striking his neighbor. And so this uncovers another failure of Moses, his hypocrisy. Pointing out others' faults while not seeing yours. Why did you strike your neighbor? Why did you strike and murder the Egyptian? It's really the pride of hypocrisy that undercuts so often any kind of credibility to minister. To minister the gospel to the world or to minister it with even one another in the body, isn't it? People don't really care to hear you if you know, if they know you do the very sins that you're calling out on them. Again, that's true as you go and share the gospel with the world. I've mentioned it before, but it just rings in my, my mind and my heart. The, perhaps the greatest apologist of kind of a modern era that I'm aware of is Greg Bonson. He was a brilliant man. And he had so many great answers to the objections about the gospel. And he was once just posed the question, what's the hardest objection to Christianity to answer? And do you know what it was? They say the church is full of hypocrites. And he said, I have a hard time answering that one. They don't want to hear us. if We don't live up live out what we preach. Now, that's all true in one sense, and we'll get to more of the answer there, but it's also true in the church. I don't think we should be surprised or condemning the world for doubts about this. Again, no one cares to listen to a holier-than-thou rebuke. It shows so little love, doesn't it? It's not very endearing. So what must we do? in both cases, to the world and to one another, what do we have to do? We have to acknowledge. we got to own our failures, not pretend something else. We need to show, yeah, I'm a sinner too. And this is kind of the point, because for what kind of help can you offer to the world or even to your brother and sister in the church who is struggling? What kind of help are you going to give? Great ideas? That you're an excellent counselor? What are you going to share? That you have this great strategy for living? What are you going to share? You have all this experience. What can you really offer to someone else? Well, this is what you can offer. Grace. You can offer and say, I've received mercy from the Lord Jesus, and all I can do is point you back to the one who gave it. It's him. What do we have to offer to the world and one another? Mercy. That Christ shows grace to sinners like me and like you. That's what we offer. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. And it's this perceived hypocrisy, probably, that explains how Moses is so coolly received by the people. That is, instead of being praised as their long-awaited deliverer, verse 14, here's what he hears. Who made you a prince and judge over us? He answered. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. 
This is his uh uh-oh moment, right? Things are not going as I planned. He comes to the the grim realization that the deed last night is not so secret after all. I've been found out, and the people are not ready to just line up behind me. So maybe in part it was faith in God that, that had Moses stand with God's people, but now that has turned right into fear, fearing for his life. So there's another failure of Moses, fear. This is not faith here. This is doubt, fear. The last time we saw the word fear in the book of Exodus, remember, it was the midwives. They did not fear Pharaoh. They feared God. They did the right thing, even when it might meant their life. Well, Moses here, he fears Pharaoh, and he runs away. Now, there comes a time the book of Hebrews talks about that's going to get reversed. Moses one day will not fear Pharaoh, and he will stand and lead God's people out of Egypt, but not now, not yet. Pharaoh is looming far bigger in his mind than God is in God's promises. And so he's scared and he's on the run. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fearfully fled from Pharaoh, I would add, and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. What do you have now with Moses? You have a colossally failed leader. You know, they say you can find out if you're a good leader or not is to to turn around and see who's following you. Okay? Okay. Moses turned around, and who does he see? Nobody. He's alone. He's a failure. His failure to trust God, which led him to take matters into his own hands, and then revealed his hypocrisy and exposed his fear of man, he then ran. And now it seems he wants to forget all about God's people. He wants to forget all about Pharaoh. He wants to forget all about those sufferings, even God if possible. This was all part of God breaking Moses down, getting him ready. He had to have Moses fail to expose Moses' own weakness, that this was not a job or a task. Even though you are the son of Pharaoh in Egypt, this was not anything you can do. Because Moses, this isn't about you. This isn't about your name, your prestige, your glory, your strength, what you can offer me. This is about my plan. And to show you that, I need to show you, you are nothing. He needed to be taught that he was needy, not that he needed to save everyone else. And this is a hard pill to swallow, but this is what we need to see. We need to see that we are failures, that we take matters into our own hands. We are unbridled in our anger. We are hypocrites at times and won't acknowledge it. We hide behind a false righteousness and that we're afraid, that we don't fear Him. But it's the start. Finding your failures, despair of yourself, and then you are ready to find a Savior in Jesus Christ. Also, we prepare ourselves for His service as we then next find faithfulness in the small stuff. I'll put it that way. Maybe you could put quotes around small. Find faithfulness in the small stuff. Verses 16 to 22. Okay, so what do we do now that we've messed up and failed? 
what are we to do then? What if you had this big dream for God, like Moses seemed to have, and then it just crashed? You messed it up somehow. What then? Is God done with us? Well, here's what we should do, and here's what it should look like. Find faithfulness in the small things. In other words, be faithful where He's placed you, and you leave the rest up to God. That's what we see Moses faithfully do here. So where have we been? Moses, he's driven out of Egypt. He's driven out of the only home he knew, all the securities of Egypt, and now he's alone, and now he's just by a well. Well, well, well. Even though he's alone, he's introduced to others who depend on this well, and so maybe he's not so alone. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the thing is, after they do the hard work, these rogue shepherds arrive and then drive the defenseless girls off and take advantage of all the work they did and take all the water. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove the girls away. That is, they did all this until something happened. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, what do you get the sense now about Moses? He cannot stand injustice. He cannot stand others being taken advantage of. He's a deliverer. And it says even here, he saved them. The only other time that gets used in the book of Exodus, can you guess who it refers to? God saving Israel out of Egypt. He has this God-like compulsion for justice and rescue. Maybe he could be God's man to deliver after all. But I think already even something is changing in Moses. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't ask for compensation. He minds his own business. More than this, he then is the consummate servant as he then delivers them, and he, then he does the quite menial work, especially to an Egyptian, let alone the son of Pharaoh, the menial work of caring for the flock by drawing water. This is impressive, impressive humility. But very curiously, the girls just soak it up and go home. And they go home much earlier than usual, and their father notices this. Now we're on to verse 18. And when they come home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? Again, he notices their early return. And it's like you want to ask your kid, Why are you so home so early from your work? They didn't fire you, right? You still got your job, don't you? And the job's done? Really? Your homework's finished? That's why you're home early? Verse 19, the girls explained, well, there was this Egyptian. Again, it tells you how much Moses had acclimated to Egyptian culture. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. But again, Reuel is astounded. And you just left him there? Really? Especially for this kind of culture that is so attuned to hospitality. How, like what? Verse 20, he said to his daughter, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we, he may eat bread. You get the sense finally someone appreciates what Moses is up to. But then again, Moses did it the right way when he saved them. He didn't murder the shepherds. He protected the girls and even served them. 
And so it is an appreciation. Reuel doesn't merely give Moses some bread, but he makes him part of his family. He gives him one of his daughters, verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. It's a new start for Moses, isn't it? He's welcomed. He belongs to this family. He has a wife, and next we're going to see he has a son. Maybe this is the restart he needs, like a whole new beginning for Moses. Let's just start over. Ah, but not quite. And it's evidenced as he names his son. It portrays in Moses that over this time there is a holy discontent, an H-O-L-Y holy discontent. Verse 22, she gave birth to a son, and Moses called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name Gershom comes from the Hebrew word ger, which means sojourner. That's a traveler, somebody who's not at home, somebody who's always on the road. And so as he names his son Gershom, he's acknowledging this is not the end of the road for us. This is not the end of the road for God's people. God had made promises to us about a land. And this is not the end of what God wants to do with me. I'm trusting in his word. And yet, even still, as he's looking to God's promises, is this not all part of God's plan to get God have Moses to be ready? It's interesting to think God was preparing Moses even by this 40-year delay in the wilderness of Midian. Very insightfully, I think, Pastor Phil Reichen draws out three ways that here God's preparing Moses for something bigger by driving him to wait in Midian. First of all, God prepares Moses by giving him this new living situation. Understand, Midian is not the fertile Nile Delta where everything grows and it's amazing there. No, Midian is a desert wasteland. And he's going to spend 40 years there. But you know what? Once Moses drives Israel out of Egypt, you know where he's going to spend? 40 years in a wilderness just like this, leading God's people around. Second, God prepares Moses in that he gives him a family situation. He now has a wife to care for and kids to instruct and disciple and to teach, to pass on to them the promises of God. And in this way, he's going to learn to lead and to teach a nation, to fear God. And you know what? God still works that way. It's no mistake or coincidence that the requirements for an elder, for example, listed in 1 Timothy 3, they must first lead their families well. It says this, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, here is the household that Moses was to shepherd to then care for the nation. And third, the Lord prepares Moses for future faithfulness by giving him a new job. It makes him a shepherd. Apparently, he got the job the, the daughters didn't even want to do in the first place. And he learns how to care for God's flock as he cares for Reuel, his father-in-law's flock, there for 40 years. But to go back to it in the beginning, at the start, Moses was all ready to go, to burst God's people right out of Egypt, liberate the captives and the oppression but now there's a 40-year delay. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? That's a long time of preparation. That's a long time to go to seminary, isn't it? But here's the thing. We pointed this out before. It might seem long to us, but it's not to God. God doesn't operate on our timetable. He's not stuck in time 
always pressing and rushing. He's not waiting. He's not late ever. He's not worried about time running out or losing his prime or losing an opportunity. He's always on time, even when we are in the greatest of hurry. And what does that mean for us? We have to look to God's promise and wait. Well, what does faith and waiting look like then? Well, Moses examples it well for us. It looks like being faithful, faithful in the little things as we wait on His good timing. So consider your callings that God has given you, the the stations in life you're in. Because maybe you think, oh, I don't really want that. I have bigger and greater plans for God. Maybe you're thinking, oh, it's like full-time ministry, or it's the mission field, or maybe it's something you want a family, and that's going to be the way you're going to honor God, or you want to open a new business, or you want to have a better job yourself, or some social initiative, whatever it is. You say, I want to do that for God. Isn't that a great plan, God? And it hasn't worked out yet. What are you doing? Well, what has He called you to do in the meantime? Look to His promise and be faithful right now. Which, what does that mean? Go back to the callings He has given you. Be a faithful husband in the meantime. Be a faithful dad in the meantime. Be a faithful church member in the meantime. A faithful mother, a faithful daughter, a faithful son, a faithful neighbor, faithful worker. Be faithful at those things, and then we'll see what the Lord might entrust to you. But He wants us to be faithful. That's where that begins. Finally, then, and briefly here, how do we prepare for ministry? Well, we saw it already exampled in Moses. We have to find faith in a patient God, verses 23 through 25. So throughout the book of Exodus thus far, it's a curious thing, but we've actually heard so very little about God. Have you noticed that? I mean, just glance through chapters 1 and 2. We hardly see God listed at all. The only time we see it is that when the midwives feared God and then God blessed them. Other than that, God has been seemingly absent. And that absence has been underscored, and it's like salt in a wound, because now God's people are hopelessly suffering, such that we might turn to God and say, God, what are you doing? Where are you? We're supposed to be your people, and yet being your people seems to really hurt. And every hope for change on the horizon, it's just bubkis. It's nothing. And you see that at the very beginning here in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Oh, finally, we'll get a new king in Egypt. He'll be merciful to us. No, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. New Pharaoh, same old story. Now they're groaning again and shrieking under their burdens, crying out, we're going to die, calling out for anyone to help. They're dying under Egypt's harsh rule. But as one pastor noted, everything changed when their inarticulate moaning and crying out became a prayer. A cry for help that went up to God. They're not crying just to anyone. They're crying to the faithful God who promised. They're despairing of all of their helps, all of their hopes. They're not depending on a new king, a new administration, a new tax law. They're not depending on some deliverer to come from Egypt's house. They're depending on the God who promised. And notice, they cry out to Him, and I'm sure God felt pretty far away at that time. 
But reality was, he was right at their side with a prayer. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He's ready to get into action. He heard their cry, and now he takes that cry, and he lines it up with his word, and he says, I'm going to move. That's what it means when he remembered his covenant or his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not that God forgot. It's not like God was hanging out in heaven. Man, who keeps texting me? Oh, the Jews in Egypt. That's right. It's been 400 years. It's not how God works, thankfully. He didn't forget about them. This was part of His plan. This was part of their preparation. They needed to see their only hope was in God. And so what does it mean practically then that He remembered? It means that He's bringing His promises into action. He's ready to fulfill them. And so then it ends in verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And this tells us two things. One, God cares. He hears, He remembers, He saw, He knows, He cares. But that's only half of the good news, see, that He cares. That's really good news, but it's only half the news. Remember where we began in the story? Moses went out and saw the plight of his people Israel, right? What was the problem? Moses, he had all the care in the world. He had just the heart to be the deliverer. But what was the problem? He was powerless to do it. Now the text ends to say, Moses, you had seen, but now God sees. And he's ready to act. And no one can stop him. He remembers. He takes notice. He will not sit idly by. He will not stop until his promises come true. And no one can stop him. And maybe you're saying, okay, I hear you. I see that in the Bible. But I look at things in my life right now, and I'm just like, I don't get it. This pain hurts too much. How does this work? You have to fight that doubt and that fear with faith in His promises. Which, what does that look like? You're going to cry out to Him. Even in the pain. Because you know He cares. And perhaps that's no more preciously articulated than this psalm, Psalm 56, verses 8 and 9. You have kept count of my tossings. He knows each one. You've put my tears, each one in your bottle. Are they not in your book? They are. He cares. He knows. And so then the psalmist says, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Then I know that God is for me. He knows. And maybe still you wonder, how does this work? I'm not sure he knows. And brother and sister, that's why we remember the cross, isn't it? That's when he heard our cry and he came for us. And he bore our sins. And he bore hell on the cross for us. And he conquered death and hell for us. He rose from the dead for us. Is he not for you? And if he is, who can be against him? Who can be against you and his promise? And if we can't see that yet, that's part why we, why we gather. Remember his word together. That's why we groan. That's okay. Read Romans 8. That's also why we pray. That's why we remember His promises. 
And that's why we plead for his help to keep us faithful in the meantime. Because he will be. May he hold us fast to him. Let's pray together.